Maximize Business Value podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Mastery Partners, where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition their business on their terms. Our mission was born from the lessons we've learned from over 100 business transactions, which fuels our desire to share our experiences and wisdom so you can succeed. Now, here's your host, CEO of Mastery Partners, Tom Bronson. Hi, this is Tom Bronson, and welcome to Maximize Business Value, a podcast for business owners who are passionate about building long-term sustainable value in their businesses. This episode is a part of our series called Tales from the 17% Club. As I've said over and over again, a full 83% of attempted business transitions fail to reach the finish line, meaning only 17% are successful. So in this series, we interview people who have successfully sold their businesses. We call them the 17% Club to learn more about the process and hear some interesting stories along the way. In this episode, I'd like to welcome our guests, Mike and Nicole Rose. They're founders of Mojo Media Labs. I've known Mike and Nicole for many years, I think first through church, and but we've grown quite close to them over the last several years. Professionally, uh, I'm in a peer group with each of them, interestingly enough, separately. <laughs> Mike is a member of my forum at Business Navigators, the servant leadership organization you hear me talk about frequently. And Nicole is a member of my Vistage Trusted Advisor Group. Several years ago, Mike and Nicole owned a specialty advertising business called Marketing Candy that provided specialty items to large and small businesses. They successfully exited that business, I believe, in 2017, putting them firmly in the 17% club. So welcome to Maximize Business Value, Nicole and Mike. Hey Tom, how Thanks are so you? Much, Tom. So good to have you guys with me, and uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun today. So tell us about marketing candy. Sure. Would you like me to go, or would you like to go, Nicole? <laughs> uh, I'll go. So this is an interesting podcast since we've never really had like two guests. Normally, if we do, I'll ask one or the other. How about Nicole? Tell us about marketing candy. (laughs) Ladies first. (laughs) Um, So so pretty straightforward. Marketing uh, candy was a um, a company that provided promotional products and print uh, solutions to um, uh, to companies. We typically worked with, uh, larger, uh, larger companies that, you know, had kind of more bulk buy purchases needs for online company stores, things of that nature. Um, it was a, it was a decent business. Um, Mike actually started the business as an embroidery business back in, what was it, Mike? Uh, 97, 97. And, um, that business evolved a lot. Um, you know, through the years, but ultimately that little embroidery business, which he started in his parents' dog shed in their backyard with one embroidery head, um, turned into, you know, a seven figure uh, uh, business uh, working with some pretty strong clients. So things like things like this cup, like my mastery partners cup stuff yes. like shirts, uh, uh, all the eye candy as we labeled marketing candy. Absolutely. Uh, exactly. Oh. And, and what- and what we loved, what we loved about that industry, the marketing candy, as we as they became known, almost like Clor- Clor- uh, Kleenex, um, they our clients would call us and want marketing candy. What we loved about that industry is that um, everybody in the organization, even enterprise level, from CEO down, loved to get their hands on the product. They loved to see their logo on mm-hmm. merchandise, and it's still, I believe, today after being in digital marketing for almost 10 years is still the highest cost per, the lowest cost per impression that you can possibly get to put your brand out there. Oh my gosh. You know, I I will tell you that uh, when I worked for a publicly traded company, PSS World Medical back in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, uh, we had three divisions or four divisions. Every division is buying some kind of uh, tchotchkes and, you know, shirts and stuff. I always said that I, that I never needed to shop again because all of my clothes were provided by diagnostic imaging. Uh, and we probably spent $10 million a year collectively 
on all kinds of stuff that we were giving out at trade shows to our yep. to our different. I mean, you. I wish that I'd known you guys back then because if I'd introduced you to to uh, to uh, PSS World Medical, Mike, you it may have had a different uh, exit than than yep. what. You're <laughs> so, so let's talk about that exit strategy. Did you have an exit strategy or? Did this particular transaction, when you sold this business, did that one sort of, as we say, fall in your lap? Um, a, a quick note on Marketing Candy on the previous question before the exit planning. And that is, to answer your question, Marketing Candy or the beginning stages of what Marketing Candy was back in 97 was had no intention to exit. I mean, I probably couldn't spell exit in 1997. Um, and I did it just because I... I, I was working in a biochemistry lab. I was in law school, and then I was going to start this embroidery business. Um, but the, the interesting thing is the reason why this business even came to be to begin with is there was a need, and we could solve that need. And that need was in 97, we were wearing shirts and ties in the lab, and corporate casual just wasn't a thing yet. And I remember the first... CEO of Alcon Laboratories, Ed Schomeyer, uh, said that we would do three months of corporate casual in the summertime because of the heat. And I was fascinated by these very smart scientists, PhDs and MIT and everything else. Uh, they, they were getting what appeared to me dressed in the dark every single morning. And they would walk in wearing this craziest of stuff because they were used to their lab coats their white shirts and their ties. And I immediately saw a need in the marketplace that corporations are going to be going casual more and more, if not completely converting to casual in the future. Hence, my uh, love of golf and golf shirts. And then we just started putting corporate logos, embroidering corporate logos on golf shirts specifically. That was our niche. And it really took off. And it took off because there was a need and we were solving a problem. Um, which then led to, I think, what eventually uh, just running a business that we just fell in love with. Well, that's, uh, I mean, to mm -hmm. me, that is a, a, like a normal trajectory for a for a bio uh, uh, chemist or a bioengineer <laughs> to to go to law school to then start an embroidery business, and of course, now in a uh, in a digital marketing, that seems to me like a very logical career progression. So if you think in 97 with that extreme focus, and I say that with a with, with jokingly, of course, that I had exit strategy in mind, uh, my mom was my bookkeeper and I, she would say, hey, listen, you're invoicing all this stuff. Where's where's the money? Where's the checks? And I said, I, I, I don't know. And and I said, go check the floorboard of my truck. And she would literally go out to the floorboard of my truck. I can pull out ten ten thousand dollar checks that I would collect from 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 clients. So, so exit strategy wasn't in mind. Valuation wasn't in mind. Profit wasn't in mind. I was just super super passionate to do what I did. I loved doing it. I loved doing the production. I loved talking to clients. And I think that is, in retrospect, more exciting than starting with valuation in mind. We started with passion. We started solving a need, and that turned into value. That uh, tells me a lot about who you are today. <laughs> doesn't it? Doesn't it? I, I didn't know the difference between the top and the bottom that's, line that's, back that's then. That's why he needs me. That's why we're good. We're complimentary. Yes, yes that is exactly right. That is now, exactly over the years, right. right. I think Nicole so, figured it out. But, you know, you're you're like most business owners. You don't really think about exit strategy. I'm probably the only guy on the planet uh, that that never gets into a business. As our audience already knows, I've done 100 transactions uh, as buyer or seller, but I never get into a business without first considering my exit strategy. And that even started when I was, you know, in my in my early 20s, starting my first business. Um, and because it was great advice that I'd gotten uh, from somebody, you're like 99.99% of business owners. You don't think about the exit strategy uh, from the beginning, but as the business evolved, uh, then and as we progressed toward, you know, your, your, uh, I guess you were in that business for almost 20 years, right? Um, yes. as the business evolved. Were you intentional about developing an exit strategy or again, did this transaction fall into your lap? And I'll ask that question to Mike. We were not intentional. 
on an exit strategy, or most importantly, and, and regrettably, not really focused on value creation, right? We weren't really focusing mm-hmm. on the 500 metrics, you know, and I say that endearingly, that quite frankly, business owners should focus on to create value. Um, when I think you focus on that, you're, you really learn to, you learn how to say yes, and you learn how to protect your, 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 your nose. And, and that is a value creation process in and of itself, because early on we say yes to everything in business. And that I think is an value, a value, uh, subtraction and not a value addition. Um, so that said, no, absolutely not. But we did follow a passion. We were solving problems. We were creating enormous value on the soft side in the sense of giving great customer service, delivering a great product, following through on our promises, over delivering on our values. And that by default led to value because of just how we like to run a business. Mm-hmm. And if I could add to that, Tom, so uh, it got to the point because we, we this didn't also fall in our lap as well. Uh, Mike and I came to a realization. So out of Marketing Candy actually came the business Mojo Media Labs that we run today. Um, and that was based on, you know, Mike's been talking about, you know, following passion, delivering great, you know, service to our clients. And because of that, our clients started asking us to do things that were outside of promotional products and print. And naturally, as great entrepreneurs, you know, uh, we said yes, um, and then figured out how to make it happen. So we started to see a separation of kind of service, a service business forming versus a product business. And so it was back in uh, I, uh, 2012 is really at the point to where um, you know, Mojo Media Labs was created kind of out of marketing candy. So we separated those business, created Mojo Media Labs as that service business, which ultimately today really focuses on digital marketing. Um, so, uh, you know, with that, um, we got to the point to where Mike was really running Mojo Media Labs at the time. Um, I was running marketing candy, and it just became very, very clear that we needed to get a little bit more focused in terms of, you know, our time and our money and where we spent it. Um, And so kind of, you know, the realization was, you know, wow, Mojo Media Labs has a huge opportunity in the in the digital space. And so we decided that, um, you know, we both should team up, you know, and and join in on that company to really grow it. And the only way to do that um, was to then look at selling marketing candy. So that that was the precipice of, you know, of why we did it. So this is a decision that, but this is a decision that you guys then made. You said it's time we probably start focusing on the digital marketing. And so in order to free up the time to do that, because we're only allocated so much time, you needed to to rid yourself of the other business. So what, what did you do next? Did you, did you go find a business broker? Did you, what, what, what did you do to start your process? Yeah, just prior to that, though, uh, we tested the service-based business in 2007, and uh, we quickly realized that, wow, you know, service-based business, as Nicole said, is very different. Um, but when we started to experience the profit margins and the the value we're ultimately delivering our clients at a whole different level, um, we were like, this is the future. This is what we want to do, service. It wasn't digital yet. It was branding, uh, things like that creative, et cetera. Um, that gave us confidence. Like this is the next 10 years. This is what the next 10 years is going to look like. Um, so from 2007 to 17 is when we put kind of a pseudo plan together. This is before we knew, uh, in 2007 anyways, before we knew Tom Bronson. Um, but we, we, we said, okay, as soon as Mojo Media Labs, let's dream for a minute. As soon as Mojo Media Labs gets to the point where we can earn our income, Nicole and I are married, we have a family to support, et cetera. As soon as Mojo can equal Marketing Candy and Marketing Candy was doing very well, we'll sell Marketing Candy. So we can, to Nicole's point, exclusively focus on building value the right way in a business on a service side of Mojo Media Labs. And that was a huge, I remember I remember the restaurant and the booth and the conversation that we had that day when we decided to do this in 2007 and, and we did it. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a quantum leap for us. We never thought quite frankly, we could get there sitting in that booth, but we just put the same passion and solved the same problem, similar problems in a new way. 
All right. So is it, do I have the timeline right? You guys actually sold the business in 2017? 16. 16. 16. Okay, 16. Yeah, we just we just passed our five year anniversary of selling marketing candy. Yep. Okay. So so which is good news, right? So uh but yep. so you made the decision in 2007 and you ultimately sold it in 16. That is nine years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So once I, I knew that you probably, I'm going to paraphrase here because I want to get on to the to the details and the story of how this all happened. Um, the uh, you started doing some work. What did you do next? I mean, did you did you go find a broker? Did you start asking people if they wanted to buy the business? How did you go about it? Oh, we were yeah. so super strategic, weren't we, Mike? Yeah, right. We we put together this incredible plan uh, <laughs> right. and executed flawlessly. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let's um, just say Mike had a guy he's known for a long time, you know, and, and that was the phone call we made. And that was the only call we made. And it was to a, it was, I'll let you take it from there, but yeah, that was as strategic as it got. Got yeah, it. I, we're, I, we're not going to give any names by the way of yeah. any of that stuff. We're just going to yeah. talk about the process, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, so you, I joined, I joined the entrepreneur organization, EO and the O Dallas chapter. Um, for any businesses out there with a million more in revenue, you know, uh, founder, majority shareholder, highly recommend the entrepreneur organization. It didn't just help me build my business. It helped me develop myself as a leader, not the leader I was with $10,000 checks in the floorboard of my truck, but checks in the bank. Right. And, and that really was a pivotal moment for me. And in EO, I got to meet some just extraordinary people. And one of the first people, person I met in EO was a broker. And I said to him, you know, I'm going to sell my business. You're going to sell my business one day. And, uh, and, and keep in mind, this is 05. We, I didn't, I knew I wanted to sell, just didn't know how. So, uh, but it started to evolve. And um, so we found a broker, engaged him when we felt like the time is right. And uh, he, I think, did an extraordinary job. We knew a lot of the the players in the industry. We've spoke, Nicole and I have spoken at industry trade shows, et cetera. Uh, but he brought a buyer to the table. That was probably the largest competitor in the industry that we had never heard of before. So it was, it's a very interesting industry, the ad specialty world, um, 20 plus billion dollar year industry. And there's just so very fragmented. Um, and he brought this person to the table and it was this company to the table and it was absolutely exhilarating. We, Nicole and I were jumping between conference rooms on different calls with different buyers and it was, and they saw the value we created. Um, not so much probably where we fell short as it comes to client concentration and blah, blah, all these other things, but they did see the value we built in cultivating just extraordinary relationships with our clients. So did the, um, did the broker give you any advice from the very beginning on how to build long-term value to improve the value of the business? Or was this more of a transactional kind of a relationship with them? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, it was, it was, you know, we went to, you know, him and, you know, I guess rightfully so. And we said, okay, it's time we're ready. Um, so the conversation immediately went to, okay, this is, this is what it's, this is what it's probably worth. And, you know, we'll start the process. So there was zero conversation about that. Um, we have learned a lot, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in this podcast, obviously, since that, you know, wish we would have known um, kind of, you know, to Mike's point initially about value creation. Um, so, you know, but that's okay. We took a lot of those yep. things and, you know, Hey, look, for most entrepreneurs, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, you guys yeah. are in a new business now and you you've learned from the the things that you did right, wrong or indifferent uh, the first right. time. And you can take that forward. You know, it's very rare that you find somebody like me who's done this 100 times. Right. Uh, because as I as I detail in my book, you know, maximize business value, of course, you guys are big fans of my book. And Mike even wrote. Absolutely. Yep. Mike even wrote the forward for this book. Every mistake that that I talk about in that book, I've made. So, uh, so it's not surprising that uh, the first, you know, the first time out of the gate, that there might have been a few mistakes. So, what do you remember the timeline? You sold the business in 2016. Do you remember the timeline when you went to the broker and said, "Okay, it's time"? Uh, was that was that in 2016, 15, 14? When was that? Gosh. 
I, I don't remember details. Do you? I, I, I seem to recall that the process went fast, that it was just a few months total, but Mike, you might yeah. recall better. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't remember the details only because the, 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 there was an interesting little twist in that in that journey mm, from when true. we decided and when we executed the agreement. And Good point. the, the uh, I want to say it was 2015. I, I want to say this is about less than a year process. Um, what happened was in early 2015, I want to say Q1, we, we made, we, decided to quote unquote, put it on the market. So when we did that, we immediately found some really interesting buyers. And the process, as I mentioned, was exhilarating. We had multiple conversations going on literally at the same time. This is when you were actually could go into an office and meet with people. Um, and yeah, well, you remember and, those days, folks, right? <laughs> and and we were literally going between conference rooms in the same building. It was, it was, it was fascinating. It was very flattering. It was, it was just, it was everything you would hope for. Um, we were able to get to uh, terms uh, on, on one that we felt was the ideal buyer. And this was now probably going to Q3. Um, so I would say six months-ish going through this process. Then when it came down to it, it came down to the wire. And this particular buyer was really adamant about closing on the end of a quarter. So that was important. So we made the decision. I believe we decided on 1231 of 2015. And then one day, my beautiful wife woke up and said, I don't want to do this. Yeah, we, that, we had, that, we had that, was a, that was a monumental and, day. Yeah, yeah. And well, I, we had beyond that, we had terms agreement in place beyond LOI, right? We had basically um, ready we to had sign. sign. Yeah, it was ready, ready, to, sign, to, ready, sign. To, ready to sign LOI. And, uh, and yes, and, and this was, uh, well, you know, well, I, I, wait a minute, yeah. was this, was it an LOI or were you, you already under LOI and this yeah. was Term, final agreement, documents. final okay. documents. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. We hadn't signed the LOI. Okay. We, we had come, right. we had come to terms, but we hadn't signed the LOI. So the, there, we hadn't gone through necessarily due diligence. So, so um, just for the benefit of the audience, let me just put the, the things in order real quick. You know, when you, when you go out to market, the first thing that you're going to probably sign between the buyer and the seller is a letter of intent. So many yep. people don't pay attention to the details of the letter of intent. And that is a giant mistake. You need to have your attorney uh, and not just your real estate attorney. I, I just am working with a client on a deal now that's that fell apart because the attorney was a real estate attorney. Get a business attorney, somebody who is a specialist in um, in transitions and, and business transactions to review that LOI, to make sure that all the terms are the way you want them. Once you have that, you go through the due diligence, there's probably adjustments that are going to be made. And then you get to what we call final documents. So this would be an asset purchase agreement or a stock purchase agreement uh, that you get to at the end that takes this little LOI and expands it into this enormous, you know, sometimes uh, I think the largest uh, asset purchase agreement that or it was a stock purchase agreement that I've signed was something on the order of 450 pages. And so so don't be overwhelmed by that. You know, it was a very complex business. But so that's kind of the steps. You get the interest, you sign an LOI, which spells out the terms of the deal. You go through due diligence, then you get to a final document. So we were at the LOI stage and Nicole had a uh, a moment of unclarity, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, as, you know, as um, I would say that I feel like I'm an accidental entrepreneur, you know, Mike, Mike was the one who started the business and, um, you know, I came into the business and then all of a sudden was now running marketing candy as, you know, he's running Mojo. And, um, you know, I, I, I never, you know, had those thoughts of selling or this, these visions. I just, you know, was excited about running the business and, I didn't realize kind of along the way how much I kind of fell in love with the business, with the clients, you know, with, you know, team members and how much it kind of became a part of me. And that was very surprising for me, just the emotional kind of roller coaster, you know, once it was like the finality of letting it go. So, um, you know, I had a renewed interest. I'm like, no, 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 we can do it all. We can do it all. And I'm going to, you know, continue pouring this. We can still grow Mojo. Well, you can see where this is going, right? So yeah. we declined. We declined the offer, um, you know, with that reasoning. Said thank you, um, but we're going to keep going with it. And I mean, it wasn't, but 
it wasn't, but maybe four or five months to where I, you know, we were back to the same place. Um, and uh, at that point then actually went back to the same person or same company who gave us the initial offer and said, okay, we're back. If you'll still have us, we're, <laughs> we're actually, we're, I promise we're ready this time. <laughs> That's not uncommon. Uh, you know, there's a great book. In fact, I, I just it's called The Seller's Journey by Denise Logan. Uh, and it talks through the psychological side of transacting a business. I, you know, I don't think I even knew that story, guys. And I, I mean, we are very close. You know, uh, Karen and I are very close with uh, with Mike and Nicole. Uh, and I don't think I ever actually knew that story. If I did, I've sort of mentally blocked it because, because Mike, I think you show amazing restraint. I would have tied Karen up, gagged her and stuck her in the closet, signed the deal and been done with it. Right. And then she would have, because we have a story that was like that, uh, that, uh, that she didn't want to, and I convinced her to do it. But um, so, but Denise Logan, it's a great podcast. It's just a few weeks prior to this podcast. So, so, uh, sellers, I would encourage you if you're a business owner, please go listen to that uh, podcast as well, because as much as you think that that's not going to be you when we get close to the end, I promise you, even as experienced as I am, I have those moments of, I don't want to do this uh, toward the end. But if you understand the psychology behind it, you can work your way through that. So I am so glad uh, that you brought that story up. So you went back to the original buyer and did they did they say, oh yeah, come on, let's go. Thankfully so, they did. <laughs> go ahead, so take the, it, Mike. The, this was a sophisticated buyer. They have made many, many transactions. They're a $300 million company. Um, and so very sophisticated buyer, uh, the, the, the uniqueness about this, and this is maybe a caution to future sellers is that we created, we established a really good relationship leading up to before signing the LOI. So there was a lot of kind of pseudo due diligence done prior to LOI. So what I mean by that is what's traditionally done is you kind of negotiate high level terms, you know, and you kind of go into an LOI, you sign the LOI and due diligence takes place. But for us, we kind of had a love at first sight scenario with the buyer and the seller. And that probably drew, dragged the LOI on a little bit longer than what typically would happen because we were both doing our due diligence, if you will, getting to know each other. We flew up to see them. They flew down to see us, all this stuff. <clears throat> and and that that created a that created an emotional tie that made it probably a little bit more emotional than what it had to be. But through that through that process, we established just a great relationship with with the bot with the with the buyer, um, and particularly the CEO of this very large company who's handling this deal personally. And I I remember sitting in our small conference room at the time, and I asked him. I said, "Hey." Um, tell me about your M&A experience. Tell me about this process, you know? And he goes, well, we have 60 million in the M&A pipeline and we close so many. I'm like, wow. I said, that's, that's just <laughs> tremendous. I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this deal, but if we ever, if I ever need you in the future, can I call you? And he said, here's my cell phone number. You text, call me anytime. And we're skipping some time, which we'll get to it. But later when we were focusing on Mojo and making our own acquisitions, I was able to text and call this guy and say, deal terms, this is what they are. And the experience in, in, in mentoring and coaching he gave us through some of our future transaction was just extraordinary. And that's just something obviously you just can't value in an LOI. So therefore we did feel comfortable going back to them many months later. They welcomed us with open arms and said, okay, let's make this happen. We went to LOI really fast <laughs> and we got through the due diligence even faster. So that was pretty cool. All right. So again, let me just give a cautionary note to our listeners. Um, that is, this is a very common experience. Um, the buyers will uh, spend a lot of time asking a lot of questions and it becomes a pseudo due diligence or a partial due diligence in advance. Just let me give a word of caution here. This one ended well uh, for you guys, but nine times out of 10, that's not going to end well. And you're going to wind up spending six or eight months dancing with somebody that you're not going to close a transaction with. And it is enormously wasteful for your time. And it just, it, it takes away from the focus on the business. So my caution is uh, if, if you're, 
uh, agent uh, or your uh, broker had been uh, uh, kind of performing the the right way, uh, he or she would have said, "Hey, let's get to an LOI. Let's discover the terms because if we're so far off base, there's no reason to go forward. Let's not waste all this time dancing with somebody that we yeah. might not want to uh, start dating." And so, so it's really important to to get a professional who understands the process, uh, who uh, can walk you through it and keep you from spending time. Because um, I I can tell you that I've seen so many businesses, they've had, you know, five or six opportunities and they wind up going through so much um, a wasted time of on pseudo due diligence before they even know if there's a possible deal that it just is enormously distracting from the business. So I just wanted to make that as a, as a note of caution. And one last question then on the, on the broker, did you find that the role that the broker played was that enormously helpful to you in the deal or or not? Nicole, I'll ask you that question. Um, I mean, it was helpful from a standpoint that he, you know, clearly had buyers to bring to us. So, you know, that's an obvious. Some other things that he was helpful at doing was um, there were some complexities like Marketing Candy was a DBA. We had Mojo's a DBA. So it got real messy real fast with some of that stuff. And he really did help us to navigate, you know, how that what that would look like um, to get us on the other side. Um, And so I think he was able to you know, to, to work out some, you know, interesting things and not kind of scare the buyer off. So from that standpoint, I, I would say yes. Um, now, some of the things that now, you know, in, to kind of your due diligence point, let me give you an example. And today, I don't know that I would do the same thing. But again, not kind of knowing, um, you know, there was an ask during due diligence, you know, for me to call up our largest customers and say, we are thinking about selling to this uh, company. And, um you know, wanted to let you know, how do you feel about that? Um, and, you know, the the potential buyer wanted to meet with these, uh, you know, clients face to face. I, I mean, the anxiety that I had to make those phone calls was, it was honestly the most terrifying phone calls, because I'm like, what if, what if now they know, and they flip out or, you know, whatever else. Um, thankfully, it went, you know, it went okay, but I'm, that was risky, <laughs> clearly. Um, and so I feel like there was, there was definitely some, I think that today, you know, if we were searching for some, you know, for, for help with, you know, with transitioning our business, we'd be looking for, you know, for, for a lot more guidance outside of just bringing the buyers and then, you know, the mechanics of it, if you will. Yeah, that's, that is so, that is what you described is enormously risky. And depending on when it is, there is no way that I would let you go and make that make those calls, right? Unless we yeah. were like days away from the transaction. Um, if if the buyer thinks that that's part of due diligence, look, you want to do your investigation. You can look at longevity. You can look at uh, at customer turnover. You can even do NPS score uh, to see how well you're doing. But having conversations with big customers and warning them. Uh, weeks or months in advance, that is a giant no-no, and and you could potentially be putting your business at risk. And so you were absolutely right to have that anxiety about making those calls. So uh, let me let me, Mike. You wanted to add something there. I was just going to say that when you're asking the previous question about did we were we happy with the broker, and should the broker have done certain things, you know. The way I look at it is whoever's representing the buyer, excuse me, whoever's representing the seller has to be clearly a professional. You, It's easier to sell to a sophisticated seller. But at the time of the three legs of the stool, buyer, seller, broker, the sellers, we were unsophisticated in the transaction process. So it's really difficult to say that the broker or the seller or the, excuse me, the broker or the buyer was, you know, X, Y, and Z. We were, we were figuring it out emotionally going through this, having never gone through it before. So we were an unsophisticated seller. Um, so I felt like the broker dealt with us really well and, and, and handled that incredibly positively and, and eliminated as much as possible. Well, even though we're not saying names here, I know your broker, very professional. Uh, and so uh, so uh, it is important to get a great broker or or an investment banker, and they are not all cut from the same cloth. 
it is so important to go and find the right ones. We're connected with the right people. So if, if you're a seller and you're looking or you're thinking about selling and you're looking for a broker, yeah. I can make recommendations there. And, and we know folks. Uh, we're going to have to take a, a quick break. This has been an, an entertaining uh, first half, but we've got a second half coming. We're talking with Mike and Nicole Rose, members of the 17% Club. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't you want to be a 17%er too? Of course you do. And we can help you get there. This fall, Mastery Partners is on a mission to unmask the value of your business with our incredible tool, the Transition Readiness Assessment or as we like to call it, the TRA. In a simple and complicated way, the TRA unmasks where you are generating value in your business and where you aren't. This comprehensive assessment pinpoints your hits and misses so you can focus on what's working and solve what's not. What you do today matters and will have a tremendous impact on the future value of your business. Get your TRA today and be a 17%er. Go to masterypartners.com, schedule a call with Tom, and join our TRA challenge. Don't be deceived. Uncover and know how to build massive value in your business. We're back with Nicole and Mike Rose, business owners who successfully sold their business, Marketing Candy, in 2016. So, Mike, let's start with you uh, on this back half. What did you learn going through the process that you did that you found maybe surprising or didn't know before? Ooh, that's a big wow. one. Um, I have to be honest. <laughs> we you, have a I time limit, by the way. Yeah. I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, to be honest with you, what did I learn? What I learned was this is a very emotional process. And they say, Nicole has got a lot of experience in residential real estate. And I've learned a lot through her on this. And they, she says that selling or buying a house you know, is, is an emotional buy. It's an emotional yeah. transaction. And it makes sense, right? It's probably the largest transaction of most people and the biggest asset and whatnot. And you're going to live there for a long time. So buying and selling a, a business is very emotional. And and mo- some people are either emotional or logical on the scale. I'm very emotional. Nicole's very logical. So what I learned is that to really stick to the facts, you know what I mean? And, and you know, uh, I sometimes would come across as don't confuse me with the facts, but in this case, the facts are really, really important to stick with the facts, to stay non-emotional and to not go into it with a, what's in it for me, uh, what's in it going into it was how do I transfer loyalty? How do I transfer value to the buyer to make them successful? Because if the buyer is successful, the seller will be successful. Um, uh, I have a mentor who says, I go into every 50-50 partnership delivering 90%. And I like that mentality. I like that thought process because the, the buyers feel that energy. They feel that you want to make this a win for them. And uh, I think too many sellers go into this incredibly uh, self-serving and that's okay. And I think that's fine. We have to be taken care of in the transaction. But at the same time, this is something that your value is going to come after the sale in most cases, either at closing or sometime in the future after the sale. So going into it, looking at the numbers and if things go wrong, they come out of it looking at the people. And I just want to make sure that the people involved in the transaction is, is very stand up people. And that, 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 that is building that relationship for success post-transaction. You know, you and I are are almost identical on our culture index. And of course, we've talked about culture index on this podcast before. So I would encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't uh, if you haven't heard that. But Mike and I, you could almost put ours over the top of one another, hold it up to the light, and we are the same person, right? You know, we, we, we're very driven. We're uh, not particularly um, um, detail-oriented. We're very emotional. Where our wives, you can almost line them up, right? You know, they're very logical. They're detail-oriented. They do those things. So so those, those things uh, kind of work uh, together. But uh, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, you said, take emotion out of it. It's numbers, right? Well, that's hard. <laughs> you know, it's all about emotional intelligence. What we really try to do with our clients is prepare them for those things that we know that are coming. Uh, because at least in my own experience, if I know something emotional is coming at me, 
uh, I am mentally prepared. I, I kind of build up my reserves to be able to prepare for that. But if I don't know, if I'm blindsided by something that happens that's emotional, uh, you know, I don't even know what my reaction is going to be. In fact, it's sometimes a very bad reaction and it shouldn't be that way. Uh, and so I would encourage uh, folks who are listening to go back and listen to um, my podcast with Susan Steinbrecher. We talk about uh, emotional intelligence. She's got an awesome book uh, out about that. And so I would encourage you to go do that. But it's easier said than done. Easier to do if you are mentally prepared for the things that the emotional hurdles that you're going to have to overcome. Uh, Nicole, same question to you. What did you learn going through this process? Um, so I think I was pretty vul- pretty naive and uh, you know, a bit vulnerable just because we were so unsophisticated going through this. Um, and, you know, looking back, I think we put way too much at risk in, you know, kind of like how we structured the deal. Um, and just trusted, you know, that it would all work out. And um, unfortunately, uh, when we, the way that we uh, exited the business, um, of course, we had an LOI the first time that we did not sign. Um, how this company was going to manage it was there was going to be someone, you know, at their company who was going to be managing a book of business. So we felt very comfortable in that first LOI with who would be managing that book of business. And I felt like we got to know them fairly well. When we went back to the company, um, that person was not available. They already had enough. They already had a lot of business, so there was another person brought to the table who would be managing that portfolio of accounts. Um, and you know, our success was going to be tied to the success, you know, of continued, you know, uh, performance of of the company. Um, unfortunately, um, this was a it was a it was a bad match for our clients. Um, uh, I'll just say that this person, you know, was um, highly successful, you know, really good person, um, just not necessarily, you know, the best match, you know, for our particular clients and kind of how Mike and I dealt with them. Um, so with that, there, you know, there were some unexpected things that, you know, that we that we dealt with, and we ended up working through it along, you know, with them um, to transition to someone else who, you know, then was able to kind of stabilize that. But that was, you know, that that was that was tough to go through. And looking back, um, you know, I would have probably protected, you know, maybe protected ourselves a little bit more and and not put so much, you know, on the line um, with it. So that was a big learning lesson. Yeah, as as I am uh, very commonly say, you need to be happy with what you get at closing because there may not be another dollar. And it sounds like uh, you guys were very fortunate that it kind of think it worked out in the end but that there was a lot of risk on the backside uh, for your transaction. And so, again, a great um, buyer representative is going to help you kind of navigate all of those things and, and minimize that. Uh, I'm glad it worked out. Now, Nicole, you you said, you know, uh, you started down the path of doing things differently. Let's take this question to you first, because I'm going to ask you this, Mike. So, Mike, I won't surprise you. I'll give you a couple of seconds to think about it. Uh, what would you have done differently, Nicole? Um, boy, hindsight's 2020, isn't it? Um, you know, so it's it's probably easy for me to say, you know, at this point, but, um, you know, I, I'm not really sure at that point that if we would have done anything differently, I think it wouldn't have been doing anything differently in the transaction process. It would have been, as Mike kind of mentioned, like building better value in the company. So for example, um, you know, we had some client concentration issues, um, we do not in Mojo Media Labs because we have learned our lesson, you know, there. Um, and I will say, you know, uh, we obviously know Tom very well. Tom has taken us through, you know, his evaluation process. And uh, that was, you know, now a couple of years ago. And um, uh, that really helped us to figure out kind of where maybe some of our, you know, weaker spots are. Um, and we, I mean, we fully believe whether or not you're, you know, you're going to exit in a year or 10 years, at some point you're going to exit and we just want to create value. So, I think that, you know, just looking back, it would have probably been less on what we would have done done differently in the process because we just didn't know. Um, and I think probably the company was valued fairly accurately for what it was based on some of the, you know, some of the obvious issues, you know, that we had. Um, so that's what I would say. So what uh, Nicole is talking about here in the assessment is our signature transition readiness assessment. In fact, uh, this podcast comes out about two or three weeks before we're doing a live webinar 
about our transition readiness assessment. And then we're going to have a five-day challenge in September uh, about the uh, transition readiness assessment and are you prepared uh, to transition your business. So uh, give a thank you for giving me an opportunity to plug that. Uh, Mike, Absolutely. Uh, knowing what you know um, now, what would you have done differently? You know, honestly, I don't. I don't think I would have done anything differently. I think, uh, I think with what we had to work with, uh, we, with the ingredients we had to work with, we created the best meal we possibly could. And, and I honestly don't think we could have done, I would have done anything differently. I think Nicole brings up a good point. If we would have done anything differently, it would have happened prior to ever even thinking of selling. It would have been back in the in as Nicole says, the dog shed days of making sure that we have a 10 year path of making sure that we're just knocking little value uh, drivers out one after the next and reevaluating those. So, um, but with what we had to work with, I think I am incredibly happy with, with what we did and how we went about it. I think both the buyer and the seller got great value. Um, and, and that that's in the clients, I think got, tremendous they got more better services and better offerings than what we could provide as a smaller company and so it was it was perfect um on the emotional part though what i would recommend to people if that is you but even if it's not one of the biggest things i think you can do in going into this because nobody's going to be looking out for this except for you and that is what's next you know, having a what's next is so sure. important on the emotional side. Nicole and I were locked, loaded, ready to go. We knew that the day we walked away from Marketing Candy, that was the first day that she and I 100% dedicated ourselves to Mojo Media Labs. And our objective was to 10x the value of that company than what we did with Marketing Candy. And I'm very proud to say that we have successfully been able to do that. So knowing that Mojo was our focus post-marketing candy was just an extraordinary uh, passion that we reinvested, knowing that, okay, I know we're going to give up a few things here or there. It's not going to go exactly like we wanted, but now we have a next big BHAG that we're going after, and we've we've been able to do that. So having a what's yeah. next a deep personal level is incredibly important. And I think to yeah. plug a book real quick, our good, good friend, Bo Burlingham, uh, with the book Finish Big, uh, just lays this process out extraordinarily well. Yes. I think uh, Mike brings up actually a really good point in that we were, there was, we didn't necessarily need, you know, the money that came from the sale, right? Our objective was more to grow Mojo Darn. versus like having this be like, you know, a huge spike the ball and we're exiting and now we want to retire. And if it doesn't work, you know, if it doesn't work out as we had hoped, um, that we're going to be in real trouble. And so, I, you know, I, I think that's a great point. And if that's your situation, man, you know, definitely be careful going through the process because you're right, Tom. I mean, whatever money you get initially, I mean, that is all that you can truly count on. You know, you guys, you mentioned uh, that you had uh, an idea in mind. In fact, you'd already started uh, Mojo Media Labs, which is an awesome uh, solution for a business owner to be able to be transitioning their business and go straight into something new uh, right behind that. So you already had that in mind. That is great advice for business owners. Know what you're going to do because, uh, interestingly enough, even though Nicole already understood that she was going to continue to bring value with Mojo Media Labs, she didn't want to let go of her baby uh, on the other side. And so, uh, and, but that is... That type of an emotional reaction is exacerbated when you don't have a plan for what's next, which also leads to 60% of business owners who sell their businesses are unhappy a year later. And so, um, yeah. so understand what that solid plan is uh, before you before you do that. Let's uh, let's wrap up with a with a couple of uh, other questions. Um, my, I think the last maybe business question that I want to ask here, and, and I'll ask uh, each of you, um, could you give uh, one piece of advice that you would give business owners about building value in their business and preparing for a transition? So Mike, I'll, I'll ask you that. And then Nicole, I'll go over to you on that. Yeah. Um, as I said earlier, it took me 20 years to really figure out the difference between the top line and the bottom line. <laughs> um, 
And over the past five, six, seven, eight years, Nicole and I have just really focused on the financials. And personally, I love doing financials. Nicole's extraordinarily good at doing the financials. What I mean by that is knowing the numbers. And um, I love that part. Um, I, and I know that's where the, the value comes from is looking at the numbers. Um, a buyer is not going to say, tell me about, they will, but it's hard time valuing it. Tell me about your culture. Tell me about your employee relationships. Tell me what they're going to do is say, send me your financials. And as much value and as much time and energy and effort that you put into creating employee uh, net uh, satisfaction, client satisfaction, that's extraordinarily important. But the first question is going to be, show me your financials. So I remember an adage, and I don't remember where I heard this. I think it might have been from Michael Gerber, but know thy numbers. And Nicole and I teach other agency owners how to run a good financially stable business through your financial statements. And, and we're very passionate about financial literacy. And there's too many people who aren't financially literate, particularly our kids. They don't teach finance very well in, in much less college, but they don't teach it in, in high school. Our kids need to understand what debt means and the, and the risk of that. They need to understand how to balance a checkbook. They need to understand the value of money, the time value of money, compounding interest. They need to undervalue. They need to understand what savings means. I, have, I had dinner with my daughter, my 21-year-old daughter last week, and she goes, Dad, I really learned something from you, and I'm really enjoying this. And you and Nicole do the fun fund. And I love contributing to my fun fund because I now can do things that that make me happy that I don't feel guilty spending the money because I know the money's already spent. It's already in an account. So, you know, teaching financial literacy is something really, really important to us. And when you have to show those finances and if, if you get a call at 8 a.m. to your financials and if you can send it at 8.01 and you feel confident about that, that's a really good thing. And so I would really, really focus on financial literacy, knowing the numbers, understanding finance, really drilling your accountants to, to get them to teach you what they know. Um, knowing the difference between accounting and bookkeeping and controller and finance is really, really important. Looking in the past is great, but being able to forecast and plan the future is even more important. Um, the the fun fund. So um, you mean the whole bank account's not the fun fund? <laughs> It is when you're yeah. not financially literate. You see, I, I know Mike and Nicole really well, and I'm guessing that the fun fund came from Nicole. That the would be correct. The fun fund came from Nicole, and, and, and we have a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, you do. All right, so Nicole, same question to you. What's kind of the one most important thing you would recommend business owners do to build value and prepare for that eventual transition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what I what I see is that uh, the vast majority of business owners um, don't think about exit period um, until they're burnt out. They're just done with it. They're over whatever it might be, and they spend their time working, you know, really really hard in the business. So for me, it's pretty simple. Like figure out, you know, figure out today, you know, first of all, educate yourself. Like, what does it take to actually um, you know, create value. Pretend that you're going to be going on the market, at, you know, like in a year, just pretend, even if you have no intention of doing it for 20 years or whatever the situation might be. Um, so educate yourself by, you know, talking to knowledgeable people. Obviously, Tom is, you know, uh, in, in this space and doing that. Um, but it is so incredibly critical to really be able to look at your business and see where the weak points are and figure out how to, and truly how to build value. Um, uh, as an in, in an eventual sale. Um, I mean, that, that would be what I would have to say. I, I strongly, you know, believe in that. Um, I feel like with everything we've learned, we've done that with Mojo. So, you know, if something were to happen, you know, now we'd be ready. Um, yeah. you know, and so it, it's, it's a great feeling. And you know what the cool thing about that is when you do this, you're going to make more money. You're going to have more fun as an entrepreneur, um, because there are things like, you know, building value is how do you kind of start removing yourself from the business in the day to day, i.e. then taking more time off creates a healthy business, right? Creating a healthy business creates more profit, i.e. you can actually make more money. So it's a lot more fun. So that's, you know, at the end of the day, if you want motivation, like it's ultimately a more fun way to, to you know, to run a business, even if you never sell. 
Yeah, I hear that over and over from our clients. I'm having more fun in my business than I was. Yep. And, and I attribute it to thinking about these things. So that is great advice. Think about your exit strategy. Don't wait until it is too late. Uh, and uh, and and get a get some fresh eyes uh, on the business yep. to kind of show you where those blind spots are. We all as business owners have little blind spots. Uh, in our business. That is that is great, great advice from both of you. Now, I know, Mike, I've asked you this question before, but Nicole, you've got to get this one. And Mike, I'm coming right back to you on this. That's my favorite question. It's the question we ask at the end of every one of our uh, podcasts and our listeners. Only listen to the podcast to get to the answer to this question. So, Nicole, what personality trait has gotten you into the most trouble through the years? Boy, I could probably pick from a lot of them. Don't don't ask Mike. Okay, now wait a minute. On my behalf, right? <laughs> you know what, we do what I other? should do. What I should do is ask each of you for the <laughs> no, other. No, don't. We're not going to. Okay, if you if, if you wanted to create maybe some tension and argument, yes, do that. But otherwise, I, I, I'm not going there. Um, I, I would say um, probably being pretty direct. Um, you know, I, I I am incredibly authentic. I am who I am. The same all the time. Um, and so, you know, that includes, you know, I, I'm not afraid to speak up, I definitely will, you know, be direct in a conversation. And sometimes it comes across, you know, as um, hopefully not too harsh, I think I've tried to get better at it over the years, but uh, so people either really love that about me, or maybe, you know, maybe it rubs, rubs them the, the wrong way. Um, but so that's what I would say, I'm pretty direct. I love that about you. And I, I, I think the word you were looking for is cold and heartless. That's what it makes you feel like. So. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. I hope that comes across as in the transcript that Tom Bronson said that, not your husband. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She is not cold and heartless. Yes. No, let me, but she is very direct and I love that about her. So Mike, what about you? What's gotten you into the most trouble through the years? And not just with Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to go a little vulnerable here. Um, you know, mine mine is the personality trait that has got me into the most trouble is self-doubt. And I think we all have it. I think we all live this imposter syndrome, but specifically for me, it's it was self-doubt and and living in in this imposter syndrome. When when you get around incredibly successful people, you want to behave like them. You want to act like them. You want to emulate them. And, and that's great. But if you do it within your business, that's one thing. But if you do it at a self-sabotaging kind of way, and I think self-doubt for many, many, many years, and it still creeps in today. I don't know if it'll ever go away. I just learned to manage it. The self-doubt slowed down my success for years. And um we could have a conversation, success breeds confidence or confidence breeds success. But for me, success breeds confidence. And because self-doubt slowed down my success, it therefore slowed down my self-confidence. And I think I know that great leaders have great self-confidence and not, not egotistical or selfish or, or overconfident, but confident in a way where you can have peace with yourself. And when you have peace with yourself and you feel joy, that is a whole nother level of leadership. It's a whole nother level of performance and success that isn't tied to monetary, but it's tied to success being at peace. And I think, you know, the people in your, in your circles that are at peace and they have probably very little self-doubt or they've learned to manage self-doubt. And it took me way too many years listening to way too many people living my life for, too, too, for other people and not myself and giving in and feeding the self-doubt. And that in turn put me into, got me into the most trouble from a personal internal struggle perspective that nobody else ever saw, which always put me at conflict with myself and not at peace. Well, thank you for being vulnerable. We all deal with that. In fact, um, just uh, our listeners, if uh, if you want to get a little bit of insight on that, um, one of the most successful people, business people in the world, Richard Branson, also deals with self-doubt. I posted an article on our newsletter. Uh, and so if you're not signed up for our newsletter, please go do that. 
or send a request to me. I will be happy to send you a copy of the article about how Richard Branson deals with self-doubt. A lot of folks do that, but but that's uh, thank you for sharing that, Mike. Thank you both for being our guest today. This has been such fun. Well, thanks for having us, Tom. It's always a blast working with my wife. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You can find Mike and Nicole Rose at mojomedialabs.com, or you can find them on LinkedIn. And of course, if you'd like to get to know them, uh, reach out to me and I'll be be happy to make a warm introduction to my good friends, Mike and Nicole Rose. This is the Maximize Business Value podcast, where we give practical advice to business owners on how to build long-term sustainable value in your business. Be sure to tune in each week and follow us wherever you found this podcast. Until next time, I'm Tom Bronson reminding you that it's never too early to start planning for your ideal desired exit strategy while you maximize business value. to the Maximize Business Value podcast with Tom Bronson. This podcast is brought to you by Mastery Partners, where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition on their terms. Learn more on how to build long-term sustainable business value and get free value-building tools by visiting our website, www.masterypartners.com. That's master with a Y, masterypartners.com. Check it out. That was perfect. I wouldn't make any changes on that.